the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Show. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is the Word to Stand On for Life, program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your questions, Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life, really anything that's on your heart as it relates to the Lord or to the Bible. All you have to do is pick up the phone and dial 210-340-9585. If you are outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app and as always I remind you daily if you are driving in your car the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen everything else is hands free you'll be connected directly to our studio producer we got stuff going on tonight I'm going to be teaching at Leviticus chapter 22 I think it's a real timely study for these last days. You know, we've been talking a lot about the priesthood in and through the book of Leviticus. So tonight it's going to be still about the priesthood, but um, we're going to try to make it as applicable and practical as it possibly can be for those of us living today. If you're out in the audience, you're called to be a pastor, boy, it'd be a great message for you to listen to. Uh, Also tomorrow, of course, Paula will be live in studio with me on the day-to-day edition of the program, so she'll be here, and we'd love your calls and comments there as well. Let's go to Lori. She is our first question of the day. Lori says, how can God be in control and the devil be in control at the same time? Lori, I don't know where you got that premise. The devil is never in control. He is, and it's in a perverse way, so it's hard to understand, but he is called a servant of God. Uh, the only reason that the devil has any purview at all in this world is is that God is using him. Now, not with his free will, certainly it's not what he wants to do, but God is using the devil uh, to accomplish his will. It's sort of like the most powerful being ever, and, and uh, Jesus can move him uh, in and around whenever and wherever he wants to. So um, God, make no mistake, is always in control. God is sovereign. Um, Romans 8, 28, a verse that we all know, he works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That's all things, including um, the the satanic attacks. Um, so, so God is the one who's in control. And I think one of the best ways to explain this, Lori, is that God has Satan on a leash. Now, to us, it looks like a really, really long leash. But God has Satan on a leash. Satan cannot attack his people. You know, we have a, a a tendency as Christians, we get a cold or we get the flu or or something happens to us and we go, the devil made me sick. The devil can't touch you physically. Not without God's permission. And frankly, and Lori, this isn't just for you, but for everybody, uh, I just don't think the devil and, and the Lord are having conversations bringing up my name, for example. 
I mean, Satan and and uh, and and the Lord when when they have these kind of conversations, as was the case with Job, as was the case with Paul the Apostle. I think you know they're they're dealing with the real heavyweights, and most of us are just lightweights. And so, um, um, without God's permission, Satan can't afflict you physically. Satan can't uh, harm you. First uh, John says that very thing. Um, and, and we need to know that God is the one who is always in control. When we remember that, we don't have to be concerned about the enemy. Now, we need to be aware of him. We don't need to give him too much credit, but sometimes we give him too little credit. He's out there. Peter says he prowls around like a roaring lion looking for the opportunity to devour us. And too often we give him that opportunity because we get some distance between us and the Lord or we let sin creep into our lives and he's there. Now, with regard to the world that we live in, Satan is the one pulling the strings. But remember, we're sort of hurtling down the corridor of time and space to the very, very end. Uh, I, I mentioned all the time on this radio program that that we're in the last hours of the last days. And Satan's angry because he knows his time is short. Uh, But the reality is that God is the one who's directing what the the enemy can do. And while he's furious and while he's trying to destroy things, and I always say that sin is insane, Satan uh, actually holds out hope that he can prevail. Um, um, It's God the one who is using the enemy to be sure to accomplish his will. So again, Lori, has got him on a leash. It's a long leash. Uh, the Bible calls him the prince of this world or the little g God of this world. In other words, uh, Satan has been given the freedom to do whatever he wants to do, but that freedom goes through the heart and the, the, the permission of God. Thank you. I appreciate the question, Lori. Here is a question. This one is uh, anonymous. Uh, can you receive the Holy Spirit before you get baptized? And does the Bible say anything about this in the New Testament? Also, did anyone get baptized in the Old Testament or did it only happen in the New Testament? Let me answer the the, the last part first. In the Old Testament, especially among Jews, baptism was a fairly normal occurrence. It wasn't a baptism like you and I are baptized anonymous. It was a baptism, baptism of repentance. And so, uh, for instance, when John showed up at the Jordan River, now we, we need to remember this was a unique situation. God had been quiet for more than 400 years. Israel hadn't heard anything, not a prophetic word. Uh, there, 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 there wasn't anybody saying, thus saith the Lord. Uh, it was just absolutely quiet. So when John shows up, that's why it's not hyperbole. When the Bible tells us that the whole countryside went out to see him, they were they were excited, confused, um, certain afraid, but everybody was curious whether it was the, the 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 normal everyday person or the religious leaders. They all want to know who is this person, what is he here to do, and by what authority is he speaking? But he would baptize in repentance, and the idea it was a preparation baptism. Preparing for the Christ. The kingdom of heaven is near. He said, repent and be baptized. Not for the remission of sins, but in preparation for the one who would come. Now, the first part of your question I think is important. Um, The Holy Spirit is given to believers the moment they're born again. The moment they're born again. It has nothing to do with water baptism. So when you are born again, the Spirit comes in. He's given as a deposit. It's like God saying, okay, I just want you to know I'm here. I want you to have the assurance of your salvation. I want you to know that there's now power in you that can change your lives. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. The baptism of the Spirit is different. That's when the Spirit comes upon you in power. And that is always accompanied by obedience. When you step out in obedience to the Lord, there's going to be power available to you. Now, I know this isn't part of your question, but I think it's important to explain. When we are baptized in the Spirit, you can call it baptism in the Spirit, being filled with the Spirit, whatever you want to call it. But when that happens, sometimes, 
especially the first time, there can be an experience, a very emotional experience, or even an outpouring of God's uh, gifts of the Spirit to you. Sometimes people will be baptized in the Spirit and speak in tongues. Others, uh, they'll, they'll be baptized in the Spirit and they'll just have this this confidence that God's love is overwhelming them. Um, but but that's not an ordinary or everyday experience. It's sort of the the initial moment. Um, water baptism is just a step of obedience. We don't get baptized to get saved or to get filled with the Holy Spirit. We get baptized in water because we are saved, and Jesus said to do it. And that obedience then pleases the Lord, and there will always be new power uh, that accompanies that, that water baptism. So, yes, you receive the Spirit the moment you get saved. Uh, we had a good weekend last weekend in, in here at the church, and, and um, um, you know, people got saved. And when they come up and they receive Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God comes up in them, and none of, the, none of those people had a chance to get baptized. So the Spirit comes first, and then baptism is an obedient response to what God has done. So I hope that answers your question. Uh, one of the things that we really need to remember, especially as you read about John's baptism in the New Testament, John the Baptist was an Old Testament prophet who appeared in the New Testament, and the ministry there was exclusively Jewish. So that's a different baptism altogether. Good question, Anonymous. Thank you very, very much. Here is a question. This one is from Kenneth. Well, what is your take on prophetic dreams? Um, Kenneth, with all dreams, I'm gonna, I'll just talk about all dreams generally first. We have to be super, super careful. You know, sometimes we Christians, we get um, so spiritual, you know, that we think every dream has to have a, a, a prophetic meaning or, you know, God is trying to tell something to us or communicate something. Um, and, and most often, and I say most often, like almost always, not the case. So um, if you are a dreamer, now Paula, as an example, is a dreamer. And and um, her dreams, the Lord sometimes will speak to her through her dreams. Um, but but that just seems to be a gift that, that she's been given. Typically, that doesn't happen to me. The other side of the coin is the one that's attacking me in my dreams. Um, but um, they're, they're typically, um, if God gives you a dream, he wants you to know what it means. Um, sometimes it's not the time when you get the dream to know what it means. So you file it away and God will make it clear. I can promise you that Paula has had um, a, a bunch of dreams that she didn't understand at all. And then as things turn out over the years, uh, those dreams come true. And and the Lord then is able to uh, to uh, confirm uh, that that dream really was for her. And she'll know then what to do with it. But um, as a prophetic dream, I think they're unusual. And I think we have to be really, really careful. I also think, Kenneth, that we need to... To, to really measure what we think might be from the Lord and and compare it with what the Word of God says. You know, the idea that we have these dreams and they all have meanings, um, it, boy, they can lead you astray. So um, know the Word uh, and then let the Lord lead. If you indeed have been given um, dreams as a gift from the Lord, it's because He wants to say something to you. And your responsibility is just to open your heart and let him share. One one caution, and I've mentioned this briefly, but I think this is important. Don't put any pressure on yourself to know right away what it means. Too many times we've had people in our church, and, and they'll say, well, well, you know, I had a dream. I'm sure it was from the Lord. And then they'll go around asking people if they think they know what it means. Don't ever do that. Don't ever do that. Um, we actually have a couple of people in our church. One man and one woman automatically comes to to mind here, um, and and they have demonstrated in the past uh, for me personally um, the the um, the gift of being able to interpret a dream. Um, when those people come to me and say I've had a dream, I take them seriously um, because I've watched them and watched their walk, and I know their maturity level. 
and so I'll I'll um, I'll listen to what they have to say, and then it's something that I need to pray about it. Uh, so th- that's that's my take on prophetic dreams. I just don't think we ought to look f- for them. Uh, if they happen, then we take it one dream at a time, compare it against the Word of God, and we we go like that. Kenneth, thank you very very much. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Hector says, um, is it necessary to end our prayers within Jesus' name? Um, Hector, it's not. You know, we use that as a formula. Jesus said to his disciples as he was getting ready to, to be crucified, he said, up to now you've asked nothing in my name, but I'm going to the Father, and now you can ask for things in my name. But he didn't mean those three words, in Jesus' name. We don't have to say that. That's not a lucky rabbit's foot. It's not a formula. Um, it's just Jesus is giving us access to the Father that we've never had before. You know, we were cut off from God because of sin. Well, when Jesus came and dealt with the sin of the world, and, and specifically dealt with your sin and mine, Hector, well, then suddenly access to heaven was opened. It's like we had no juice in our cell phone. The cell phone is off. You know, it's, my battery's dead. And then you plug it in, and suddenly you have access. Well, the same thing is true. Jesus gave us that access. And because he did, then we're we're literally praying, approaching the Lord with the confidence that he's going to hear our prayers. Hebrews says that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence. I don't like the King James there. It says with boldness, and we we think that means being loud and, and demonstrating bravado. It doesn't mean that at all. We can come before the Lord because Jesus has made the way. And sinful man can approach a God who Paul writes lives in, in the, the invisible God lives in, 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 in a light that we can't begin to look at. And so uh, all of a sudden, though he lives in unapproachable light, because of what Jesus did, we can approach that unapproachable God. And it's an amazing gift. And by the way, Hector, something that we ought to remember often and be grateful for all the time. You know, we can call people in in, in the work world and, and we get a secretary, we get a voicemail or something, and we can't talk to them. No, I'm busy, don't have time. Uh, um, but, but God never is too busy because Jesus has made the way for all of us. And I, I want to repeat this because I think we Christians sort of just take for granted that in Jesus' name is like a formula. It's not. If you're not right with God, then your prayers can't be heard, no matter how many times you say in Jesus' name. If there's unconfessed sin, unrepented sin, then you can't approach the Lord. And again, you can say in Jesus' name a bunch of times. It's not a formula. It is a way. He said he's the way. It's a way to the Father in heaven. No one comes to the Father except through him. And that's what Jesus' name, which represents in, in, in the Jewish culture, um, his character, his attributes, his holiness, everything that he is, just sort of open that door so that we could um, talk to God the Father. We can talk to God the Son. We can talk to God the Holy Spirit because Jesus made the way. And that's all it means. But to say in Jesus' name is too often taken as as a formula. Well, if I do that, God has to answer my prayers. And that's just not the case. Thank you, Hector. Appreciate it very, very much. Anthony says, I want to be a pastor one day and would like to know the best way to prepare. Anthony, I could give you um, a whole the whole hour on this one question, but I will be be brief. Um, I actually teach a pastor's discipleship class uh, here at the church. I've been doing it now for I think twenty six or twenty seven of our twenty eight and a half years, uh, and and you know all of my pastors have come out of that class. Our elders have come out of that class. And it was a class that initially for people that want to be a pastor, and I used to tell them. You know, being a pastor is not easy, but it's the best job in the whole world. And so if you want to be a pastor, the best way to prepare is to devour, devour your Bible. That's the priority. Devour it inside and out. You can't get enough of it. You know, Anthony, when 
um, I got saved. I could see and um, uh, have the ability to read fast, and I, I have a, a good memory that God has blessed me with. Um, and I couldn't get enough. I was in the Word or studying uh, books about the Word. And this sounds like I'm trying to be spiritual, but I'm really not. But 10, 12 hours a day. Uh, I just couldn't get enough. And if you're going to teach the Word, you've got to be a, a workman rightly dividing the Word. That means you need to study to show yourself approved. And and the Word, has, you've got to be so convinced that the Word is true. You can't change your mind down the road. You've got to be personally convinced uh, by the Holy Spirit that that is His Word. It is the final Word, and you need nothing else. And then as you study it, the Lord will begin to solidify your faith and give you some direction about where you're going to go. But that's the first thing. You've absolutely got to, to devour the Bible. Secondly, you've got to be a servant. If you're not a servant at heart, Luke chapter 17, the first 10 verses, is, is what God means by being a servant. Uh, if you're not a servant, then you're going to get puffed up. You're going to think, hey, God picked me to be a pastor, so I know more. You've got to be humble. You've got to be humble. And being in the Word will humble you. And not only will it humble you, but it will will give you an idea about how big God is and how little you are. You've got to be a servant. So in church, wherever you go to church, Anthony, serve. And don't be afraid to do something menial. Say, do you, do you have a cleaning crew or, or children's ministry? And by the way, for a Bible teacher, children's ministry is a wonderful place to start. You want to talk about being humble? Those kids, I promise you, will humble you. And so that's what you do. You serve. And you serve and you serve and you serve. You know, Paul and I, the very first ministry that we ever had uh, together as a couple was a nursing home ministry. And I recommend it. You want to, um, to 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 really feel the privilege of of serving the Lord, um, and, and and nursing homes are are happy to have people help. Go teach a Bible study, at a nursing home. Doesn't smell good. People will nod off. I've had people's false teeth fall out of their mouth. Well, well, they fell asleep while I was teaching. Um, Sometimes they can hear and understand. Other times they can't. But God will teach you to love those people. And they're truly in their last days. So it's it's a great, great, great training gown. But you need to be a servant at heart. And, and if you're not, then you can't be a pastor. Uh, otherwise, you're only going to be serving yourself. Finally, I think, Anthony, the thing that you need to do... Um, Let's just learn to love people, even the difficult ones. I say this fairly frequently to our pastors here at the church. You don't have to like people to love them. But when you love them, then God will change your heart and you'll begin to like them. And you've got to deal with, with difficult people, unreasonable people, um, people with bad motives, um, you just got to learn to do that. And, and, and the way that you do that is simply to pray for them and love them. So those are the three primary things. If there was a fourth, I would add that you've you got to have a vibrant and active prayer life. Just you and the Lord and nobody else. And you've got to do that. So, Anthony, that's the, I think, um, the, 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 the primary keys to um, prepare to be a pastor. And I can promise you, I said this earlier, but you don't want to miss out. If God's called you to do that, you don't want to miss out on it. It is a great, great, great life. And I I just can't imagine doing anything else. I got two minutes to see if I can get Millie's question. Jesus said we would have tribulation in this life, so why do so many Christians believe in an escape rat rapture? Uh, Millie, you've been poisoned a little bit about the rapture. Christians just don't want to stand the great tribulation. Of course we don't. Jesus even said that we should pray that we would be counted worthy to escape that, that trial that's going to come up on the whole world. We should pray that we should be worthy to escape. Now, we're only worthy in Christ's righteousness. 
But of course we want to escape the great tribulation. And when Jesus said we'd have tribulation in this life, he didn't say the great tribulation. Those are two completely distinct things. The great tribulation is an event. Tribulation in and of itself is just a constant sense of trouble. And we have that every day in this fallen world. But great tribulation, we're going to be able to escape because Jesus can't punish the people that in his eyes are perfect. You're perfect, merely if you're a believer, and I'm perfect. So, yeah, we're going to have tribulation in this life, uh, but it's not the great tribulation. And I think you need to be a little more discerning, uh, Millie, in who you're listening to. And just make sure your Bible's open and you're checking everything against the Word of God. Let me suggest to you Genesis chapters 18 and 19. And if you go there, there is a message in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah that is, I hope, super comforting to all believers. I cannot do anything that destroying evil says until I take you out of this place. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in the Wednesday show. We'd love your calls and questions. 340-9585. I'll be back in two minutes. back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our Wednesday program, 340-9585. That's area code 210 for your live calls and questions. Let's go to line one and talk with Alan from San Antonio. Alan, thank you for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. This is Alan. How are you? Oh, God good bless. to hear from you, Alan. I'm doing well. Hi. Um, I was going to ask you, uh, I'll, they found more heart blockage, um, and so they'll do a procedure on December 4th, uh, this okay. Monday, on me, and probably put more stents in there. And I was going to ask if if you all could pray for me, and, and uh, I appreciate that. Oh, Alan, I, I will be praying. We will be praying, and... Now a lot of people in this audience will be praying as well. Can I pray for you really quickly now? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, Lord, you have protected Alan and and um, always made sure that he was at the doctor's at the right time. And you, you knew all of this was going on. And now we ask, oh, Lord, that you would touch him, um, open those valves, open those arteries, um, but, Lord, if you use the doctors to do it, and, and that seems likely, uh, we pray for great skill from the doctors. We pray for a successful outcome. And, uh, Lord, give Alan the peace and comfort of knowing that when they put him under, before he goes on that operating table, um, he can go to sleep talking to you. And when he wakes up, he can say, thank you, Jesus. Please, God, keep him safe. Amen. Alan, thank you for the update. I appreciate it very, very much. Thank you. God bless you. You too. A lot of people going through some physical things now. Lots and lots and lots of people. Here's a question from Joe. Um, Joe says, how do you come back to God and Christianity after messing up over and over again? Joe, uh, I'm really, really grateful that you, you asked the question because um, I'm, I'm even more grateful that God makes it so easy to come back to him. He makes it so easy. It's the Holy Spirit who's now knocking on the door of your heart. It's the Holy Spirit who's letting you know that God loves you and he's calling you back home to him. Now, uh, if you're a real believer, if you've been born again and fallen away, First John 1 nine says, all you need to do is confess your sins if you do that, now to confess doesn't just mean to say it out loud, Joe. What it means is that I'm agreeing with you, God. What you say is sin is sin, and you hate sin, and I hate sin, and I need to come back home to you. That's what confession means. And if you confess in that manner, God is faithful. It doesn't say Joe is faithful. God is faithful and will forgive you of your sins and purify you from all unrighteousness. And Job, that's the best thing about our Lord, is that you can come to him and instantly 
It's as though you hadn't sinned. Now, it's going to be some work. The devil's not going to give up. But God will let you know that he's always there. And that's because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, is is one of Jesus' seven sayings from the cross. And he was thinking about you when he did that, Joe. So you mess up time and time again, you got to be so sick of it. you got to hate your sin so much that you can run to Jesus and say, I don't want to be like this anymore. I want my life to change. Now, Joe, if you're not a born-again Christian, and I have no way of knowing from your question, you know, a lot of people raised in church and they messed up their lives, um, but they've never really surrendered their heart to Jesus Christ, then here's the one thing that you can do right this minute. You can say, Jesus, I'm sorry. Forgive me of my sins. I want to be with you, Lord. I believe that you are the Son of God. You're God the Son. I believe that you died for my sins, and because you didn't stay dead, I believe that only you can forgive sins. And I don't want to live that way anymore, so please, God, forgive me and come into my heart. And at that moment, Joe, Jesus will come flooding in, and the power that raised Christ from the dead lives in you, and you don't need to mess up over and over again. It's really simple. Do me a favor, Joe, if you have a Bible today, right as soon as the program's over, read Romans chapter 3, 4, and 5. And just read the first part of chapter 6. And let the Spirit of God really, really speak to your heart. It won't take you that long. And God will let you know what it is you need to do. And aren't we grateful, Joe? Aren't we grateful that God makes it so easy for us to come back. We sin, we do it willfully, we know we're rebelling against God, and yet God is so gracious that he doesn't hold it against us. And if you do that, Joe, your sins, all of your messing up over and over again, as you said, all of it is as far from you as east is from west. Your sins thrown in the deepest, darkest ocean, and you can choose today to leave them there because the blood of Jesus Christ covered them up. Come, let us reason together, Jesus said through the prophet Isaiah. Though your sins are as scarlet, they can be white as snow. And that's exactly what God is leading you to do right now. So, Joe, if you don't mind, give us a call back and let us know how you're doing. Uh, People will be praying for you. Appreciate it, Joe. Here is a question from Juice. Do you think aliens exist, and will they be the explanation for missing Christians at the rapture? Juice, aliens do not exist. God made angels, and he made people. Jesus said, I've told you everything, so there's nothing more. Now, demons, the enemy, um, you know, he can make us imagine things. He think he can make us think things. And, and uh, you know, we've got a, a, a world that's sort of crazy lost in UFO sightings. And, and I saw people from outer space, those kind of things, um, UFOs. Um, that's a distraction. And it, it very well might be an explanation uh, for why Christians are gone at the rapture. I don't think that will be the one, but it could very well be. But aliens do not exist. There's no life, human life on other planets, no extraterrestrial life on other planets. Um, That frustrates people when I say it because we've spent so many multiplied billions of dollars trying to find out answers that the Bible already tells us about. Um, but but no, Jesus is the one in control. He's the one, Colossians 1 says, that's holding all things together. He created all things. There was nothing made that wasn't made by him. And he's the one holding all things together. And he would have told us if there was another life form. Jesus died for the sins of humanity, mankind. He didn't die for aliens because he never created aliens. So, Juice, I hope that answers your question. Here's a question from Glenn. 
Uh, Pastor Ron, can you explain 1 Corinthians 7.14, please? Um, yeah, Glenn, this has caused a lot of people a lot of grief over the centuries. Um, Paul is writing. Now, remember, the thing we got to understand is that Corinth was a church out of control. And 1 Corinthians, in particular, is a letter of rebuke. If if you didn't know Paul addressed them as brothers, you'd think he's writing to unbelievers, people rebelling against God. But but Corinth was an exceptionally wicked city, and the people were still living in, in many areas like they did before they got saved. And so Paul is correcting them. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 14, I'll read the verse. They were asking questions about marriage and what to do uh, if you're married to an unbeliever, but you're a Christian. Uh, and he's saying, stay where you are. If they're pleased to live with you, stay where you are. And then he says, here's why. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife. And no doubt, uh, Glenn, this was a a situation that, um, a specific question that he had from a believing wife who had an unbelieving husband. Should I leave him now? For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife. The unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children will be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Now, the word sanctified doesn't mean saved. In this case, what what it means is that because you're a believer in that home and you're going to be praying for your unbelieving spouse, then they're set apart. It's sort of like they've got a target on their back. It's a good target because it's a Jesus target. But but it doesn't mean that they're going to be saved, and 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 then he says the f- children that come from that relationship, even though there is an unbeliever in it, the children are also set apart. So God's going to chase them, and and in the case of the unbelieving um, husband, First uh, Peter says that the answer is for the wife to submit to her husband, to honor him, and 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 to win him over by her behavior without words. So it gives you an opportunity as the believer in this marriage to be an example of God's love and Christ-likeness. And if you do that, then remember, God's got you set apart. Now, I'm a perfect example of the practical outworking of this first Glenn, Because Paula prayed for me for 13 years. And she prayed for me for 13 years. I can promise you it never for one minute of those 13 years looked like God was listening to her prayers. Not for one minute. And she would get so despairing. And then one day it all changed in an instant. There was no warning. There was no indication that I was going to give my life to Jesus. It just happened. And and the reason is because I'd been sanctified or set apart. And that's the idea uh, here for sanctification. I was set apart by her prayers and, of course, by the foreknowledge of God. So, Glenn, I hope that explains um, the, the, the verse to you adequately. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Uh, Joel or Joel, we've got mostly Joels in our church, so I get used to saying that. Um, Joel says, I heard a pastor say that if you are having big trials, it's because God has something really big for you. Is that true? Because I'm going through some really hard things right now. Um, Joel, no, that's not true. We all go through hard things. Uh, Life is hard. It's not supposed to be easy. God never promised he was going to take our problems and wipe them away. I mean, he didn't do that for his son when Jesus begged him in the Garden of Gethsemane three times to let this cup pass. When Jesus was bleeding great drops, or sweating rather, great drops of blood, his body sort of last-ditch effort to hydrate itself, um, the Father said no. When the Apostle Paul begged three times for the thorn in the flesh to be taken away, the Lord said no three times. My grace is sufficient for you. So we go through really hard things. Now, one of the things, Joel, and I don't know where you go to church, but typically, that's the kind of teaching you get in the prosperity churches or the, 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 the I call them health and wealth churches. Um, you know, we want to feel like, okay, well, well, there's a reason for the trial. The reason for the trial is because we live in a fallen world. Most of our trials um, are caused either by circumstances that we can't control or 
their self-inflicted wounds because we've not been obedient. But here's the thing for you when you're going through some really hard things. Just look to Jesus. The Apostle Paul writes to the church at Colossae to set your heart and your minds on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of glory. Now, your heart is a place of affection. Your mind is the place of decision. Now, typically, we have more problem with the mind than with the heart because we're going through something and, and, and we just can't make that decision. We'll stop sinning or I'm going to look to you, Jesus. But we've got to have that partnership between heart and mind and set our hearts and minds on things above. And um, Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Think on those things and the Lord will be there with you, and he'll provide a peace that passes understanding. But just because you're going through hard things doesn't mean that the minute you get through it, there's going to be this huge blessing. And I think, unfortunately, we sort of misrepresent God. Many preachers misrepresent God by saying, no, that's a sign something's good going to happen. I guess that's their little shot of encouragement. The problem is it's false hope. I think if you're serving God, the enemy's angry. Uh, and he's going to huff and he's going to puff. But Jesus is with you. And you'll learn that it's true. His grace is sufficient. So, not a good concept as the pastor presented it. But um, instead of looking for what God's going to do, you all look at what he's already done for you. And you just run into his presence. He'll be there for you, I promise. Here's a question from Theo. Never thought of it this way, Theo. He said, is revival a biblical concept? Um, I don't think so, Theo. I don't think it's a biblical concept. It's not. It's not. Doesn't mean it's not a a, a a solid concept. You know, the Bible doesn't really talk about revival until the very end. Um, at the end of the age, uh, in the Great Tribulation, it's going to be the greatest revival in the history of the world, and it's going to be start with God's people being brought back to Him with the ministry of the the two witnesses uh, at the Western Wall, and then the hundred forty four thousand uh, Jewish witnesses that are going to be sealed or protected by God. And then they're going to be um, um, endued with supernatural powers. And, and they're going to lead this great revival. But until that, I don't think we have revivals. Uh, I guess in the Old Testament, you can go to Nehemiah chapters 8 and 9. And there is a revival that happens um, when Israel is permitted after 70 years of captivity. So in that sense, it's a revival. They came back to their homeland and they, they, they came back to a biblical Old Testament concept of what it means to serve. Um, but in our day, um, I, I think, I'm, I make up words sometimes, and here's a word I'm going to make up. I think vival is a biblical concept. People need to get saved. And in what we call a revival in our world, uh, a real revival is way, way, way more about people getting saved than uh, and that's the Bible, then people coming back to the Lord. A revival, by definition, is people coming back to the Lord. And, um, you know, the Jesus movement back in the late 60s and early 70s, that was a, a, a move of God's Spirit where people got saved. The great Welch revival, um, um, some of the, the other great revivals in, in the history of the world, um, they were, were people getting saved, not just people coming back to him but people getting saved. So I guess there's, it's sort of a biblical concept, but I like to think of it as vival rather than revival, Theo. I hope that makes sense to you. What I know is true is we need to share the gospel and we need God's spirit to be poured out one more time before Jesus returns for his church. I don't know if that's going to happen, but I sure like to think that it's going to happen. Jennifer asks, why aren't women allowed to speak in church services? Jennifer, women are allowed to speak in church services. I'm, I'm assuming you're referring to uh, 1 Corinthians. And uh, remember I said to an earlier question that 1 Corinthians is a letter of rebuke and correction. There was nothing going on in Corinth that resembled godliness or uh, order or control. 
it was just um, women were, were exercising, flaunting their newfound freedom, um, rebelling against the leadership, the authority of their husbands in the home. Uh, in the ancient world, uh, at least in Corinth, um, uh, the, the church was divided, and by that I mean women sat on one side and men on the other side. In some cases, women would sit in the back, the men in the front. Women did not have um, um, uh, the same freedom then that, that women do now. And in Corinth, Jennifer, uh, what they were doing was speaking over. The word speaking there, it's it's a, a verb, um, but but it's, it's more a, a harangue. Um, and they were speaking over, and the church was out of control. And Paul is saying, be quiet. Ladies, if you've got questions, ask your husbands at home. Now, here's the proof that women could speak in church. There were prophetesses in church. Philip had four daughters. Of course, um, Aquila and Priscilla. Priscilla was a very gifted teacher. Um, certainly there were prayer meetings, many, many prayer meetings, and women would certainly be able to participate in those. So that exhortation was given only to this out-of-control church in Corinth. Women certainly are allowed to speak then and now, and God forbid if we don't give women a voice in our churches. Now, they can't teach, they can't be pastors, but if if we don't give them a voice, we're the ones who are getting ripped off. We're the ones who are going to be missing out. It's very important, Jennifer, that you understand that. Now, in contrast to that, when Paul writes to Timothy, he says, I do not permit a woman to speak or have authority over a man in the church. Uh, or I'm sorry, to teach or have authority over a church. We might say um, she can't have a position of authority from which she can teach. Um, leadership is male. But but that in no way silences the women. And, of course, in that case, it's not a local situation because he goes back to Genesis. It's a hermeneutic that simply says Genesis lays a foundation for something that is going to go on in every church for all time. That's the way God has designed it. So women are allowed to speak in church, and we need to encourage them um, and give them a place. Give them a place. I can tell you there's a woman in my house who speaks, and so often it's like the voice of God speaking to me. God speaks to me through Paula so many times. Okay, here's a good one, and this will be the last question of the day. Um, Andrea or Andrea says, what is the best way to determine which Bible commentaries are trustworthy? Um, Andrea, there's no shortcut. There's no shortcut. Let me give you a little bit of my own experience. Um, when I got saved, and I've said this many times on the program, I had never opened a Bible. Um, I had no idea. Uh, I had no church tradition. Yesterday I got a question uh, about Advent. Um, I, I had no churchy baggage. I, I didn't know that this is the way church has always done it. I didn't know what any ceremony was. I, I was just a completely blank slate. And when I got saved, and I got this ravenous hunger for the Word, I didn't understand it much better than anybody else because I had no background and I had to really, really deal with, okay, what does this say? And I'd get into books and books and books. Now, let me also say this, Andrea, the struggle is good because God is teaching you discernment. And I learned a lot about discernment by reading something. And I would read something and and the, the place where I was doing all my studying was a very liberal school of theology. In fact, the most liberal school of theology, I think, in the country, Claremont, California. And I didn't know liberal from conservative. I, I didn't have any idea. Uh, I was doing a paper on Daniel, and, and I would read that, that Daniel didn't really write Daniel. And those were liberal theologians trying to explain away the supernatural book of Daniel. And and just the, the spirit of me was saying, that's not right. Dig deeper. And I learned quickly how to discern whether a commentary is a good one or not. Now, it took some time, but I learned that. And I think that struggle, Andrea, is very, very healthy for you. So um, we need to develop our sense of discernment. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Then when you find some commentators that you can trust, you will absolutely cherish them. And I've got, I don't know, maybe 15 
commentators that have, have literally changed my life um, um, over the years. Um, so, so just read and dig in and trust that the Holy Spirit is going to lead you and guide you. And your confidence of that, uh, Andrea, will be very, very important. So um, the best way to determine is just to turn pages and read things. And don't feel like you're wasting time. Just read something and then let the Holy Spirit sort of lead you. There's something wrong with that. There's something. I, I started going when I first got saved to a prosperity church because I needed money. And, and and the people that led me to this church said, well, God wants you to be rich, so just believe it. And I said, I can do that. Um, but But I knew something was wrong. From the beginning, I knew something was wrong with it. I didn't want to believe it. And the Lord really took me on a on a pretty quick journey, but it was a journey nonetheless where I had to be willing to throw away everything that I was hoping for and say, Lord, whoever you are, you help me find out, I'll serve you. That discernment is important. Hey, thanks for tuning in. Paula will be live in the studio tomorrow. Tonight I'm going to be teaching Leviticus chapter 22, calvaryessay.com. You can watch it. I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The word to stand on for life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.